From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back to another episode of Defenders of Capitalism Project. This is your host, Michael Williams, and uh, this is the podcast where we talk about and apply the principles of individual rights, the principles of capitalism, the only moral socioeconomic system. And here I am with my good friend and collaborator, Anders Ingmarsson. Anders is the creator and chief opinionated officer at Separate. Tell us about Separate, Anders. Yeah. Hi. Uh, nice to be here. Separate uh, it was a newsletter slash blog that I started back in 2013. And uh, the Subtitle is SeparateStateAndTheEconomy.com, and uh, it, um, well, I basically wrote about all aspects of where we need to separate the state and the economy. Yeah, and that's, that's sort of unique. I mean, people talk about, you know, separate, the separation of church and state, but not very many people are actually applying that same principle, which ought to be applied, to the economy and state. Um, and you've written a lot. I mean, you wrote a lot and are, are still writing a lot for that. And now you've, you've been published all over the place. You've been published in The Federalist, The American Spectator, Town Hall, Heartland Daily News, The Objective Standard. And now you've written a book. And that's mainly what we're here to talk about is your, your new book. Actually, it's not new anymore. This is the second edition. Yeah, it's actually the second expanded edition. The title is... Uh Think right or wrong, not left or right, uh, 21st Century Citizen Guide. So um, I want to ask you about the title, how you came up with the idea, but I also want to you know, give our listeners a little bit of background. Uh, you and I have known each other for a number of years. I think probably we met in the context of uh, both of us were interested in education and actually potentially uh, starting private schools, and you had a lot more training than I did in terms of education. You, you have a Montessori background, but you also have a business background. Tell people about your your background. You have a very unique background, not having been born in the U.S. You're you're an American by choice. Give people a little bit of you know Anders' bio. Uh, sure. Yeah, I was born and raised in Sweden. Spent my first thirty years there. Uh, spent a stint in Denmark and in Switzerland before coming to the U.S. in 1994. I came here with the most well-known Swedish company of them all, IKEA, and uh, spent uh, the next three, four years with them. And I had a, uh, an agreement that uh, I stayed with them for a few years, and I got my green ca- card, and then it was off to the races. And as you mentioned, I actually had an interest in education, so I went back to school and got my Montessori certificate. And then I came out here, I taught for a year, and then I tried to get a new school off the ground. Now, the timing was terrible. This was during the telecom bust back in 2000. But I also found out that, you know, I was not really enjoying that much the entrepreneurial life. So I went back to, to business and worked in IT for basically the next 20 years before retiring from that. And uh, in parallel with that, then in 2013, I started writing on the side. And uh, now uh, in the last year or so, I've spent more time. So and now more you have a life of leisure. You're uh, teaching me how to play golf. <laughs> right, yeah. I don't like the word retirement, you know. It's just... Uh, no, it seems like you yeah. still have a very uh, active, uh, productive life. You, you and Maria uh, spend a lot of time hiking. You, you, like I said, you, you're 
you're very tolerant with me on the golf course. Uh, you know, I think you still have a, a big, from what I can tell, a big interest in education. Um, maybe not necessarily the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial aspect of starting a school. I don't know if maybe someday you'd want to do that, but but you guys uh, have very active lives. Um, but what made you decide to to start writing and to to write a book? Well, to write a book, it kind of evolved after starting the newsletter slash blog back in 2013. And I wanted just to synthesize my thoughts. And then the market that I saw or still see is that there is a big gap and big misunderstanding between uh, the concepts of political left and right versus morally left and morally right and wrong. And... um, If you look at the political landscape out there, you have the right and the left, and they seem to be radical opposites to most people. But if you go a little bit deeper, dig a little bit deeper, and look at what they actually stand for, there are a lot of similarities between the left and the right in terms of what what they want to achieve and what what moral ideas they represent. You know, it's interesting because you're, you're entrepreneurial. I mean, you were way ahead of your time as far as the whole school choice movement, seeing the opportunity to have a more rational curriculum put together. You know, you, I, th- I feel like you and I were both a little bit early in that regard, and, and it's, it's kind of refreshing to see that they're, that's starting to take hold. Now, maybe COVID has pushed that along a little bit, but you were ahead of your time that way. And this whole idea of pushing the idea of separating the economy and the state most people aren't aware of that. And now you have this citizen's guide. Uh, I think it's a really important book. Um, you know, people are getting more and more political. I mean, it seems like everything is politicized, although a lot of people, a lot of Americans, I think, are kind of tired of politics or, you know, they don't really want to engage that way. But but they are searching. They're saying, you know, how how do I make sense of this? And and it's a fairly unique point of view that you have, and I think I share this, um, that you know, both parties are really kind of similar, and you're talking about that. Give us more examples of how the political parties in this country, while on the surface, maybe seem diametrically opposed. Tell the audience, you know, why they, what they share. Yeah, uh, just before that, let me comment on what you just mentioned about people in the middle, or, or there is a term being used, the exhausted middle. Yeah, the exhausted middle. And that's middle. actually one of my main target groups with this book. People who are sitting there like watching a tennis match, looking left and right, and and the volleys are going back and forth over the net, and they're just shaking their heads and basically want to have no part of it. And so, so that's one of my targets group. This this book is addressing and, and hopefully is giving them a perspective on why the left and the right are, are basically playing on the same side of the yeah. net, if you like. Um, and, and, and then the second target group I have is actually young people. I'm working on and uh, thinking that um, perhaps in the high, uh, homeschooling space and high school kids, this is a book that is um, written in a way so that it's pretty easy to understand and, and it could easily be part of a homeschooling curriculum. I think it will be hard to break into public schools, but... Uh, uh, At least for right now. But. For right now, yeah, exactly. So back to your question about how the political left and right are similar in many ways. And uh, one of the terms that 
I write about is collectivism. And collectivism is when, um, when you think that a group has rights that supersedes the rights of the individual. And the opposite of that is individualism. And individualism is a, a political ideology where you protect individual rights and really the government is the servant of the people and not the other way around. But if you look at the political left and right today, the political left are, are pretty explicitly collectivist in the sense of thinking that the rights of uh, a race or a gender or a um, majority or more often than not a minority supersedes the rights of the individuals. So for instance, if uh, you are, um, well, take the one of the more famous examples recently, if you don't want to bake a cake for, for a gay couple's wedding, well, then that minority the rights of the gay couple should supersede the rights of the individual baker. Uh, that's one example because of, of how Because of their, their membership in that group of being uh, an oppressed minority of gay people? Yeah, exactly. In this case, that would be the case. But you, you have all these kinds of groups in society. So it, um, those groups can be um, children can be a group, retirees can be a group, Patients. people with a certain disability can be a group, and, and they all are are waiving their rights, their alleged rights, and are trying to impose that on their fellow citizens. So um, one of the things I really enjoy about the book is that you provide a, a framework, a philosophical framework, but then you go into a lot of detailed, concrete examples, just like you're, you're, you know, the one you gave about the, the cake. And, and I think people should be, our listeners should be, uh, you know, kind of listening carefully for the way you're talking, because I don't think you're saying that it's necessarily moral or right to deny someone a cake uh, because they're gay, but you're not saying that, you're also saying that the person, because they're gay and part of that collective, has doesn't necessarily have a right to demand someone to bake that cake. And I think that's unique in the sense that, you know, the, the, there are people on the, in this case, there are people on the right who would say, you know, the gay person is immoral. They have a more immoral lifestyle, and and they you know they shouldn't be able to have cakes baked by by religious people. And there are people who are on the left who are saying, no, you know, we have to protect those rights. The, the, these are people who've been minorities. And what you're saying is, I think, uh, is that it's really the rights of the individual in both cases to make their own decisions, even if it's mistaken, even oh. if it's mistaken in my judgment or your judgment or 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 anyone's judgment. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So as an individual business owner, I have my individual right to deny service to anybody on whatever rational or irrational grounds. I mean, it's probably not a good business practice in the long run, but you have that right. And as a consumer on the other side of the, the uh, transaction, you know, I have the right to walk away if, if I don't like the terms of, of the deal. So why, why a citizen's guide in the first place, though? I mean, I, did you ever think, you know, I guess once you started writing the ideas about separating the economy from the state, you knew you were going to be drawn into writing more and more about politics. Did you want to be a, a political commentator once you decided that uh, you were going to be a writer and, you know, you know, looking at the kind of goals you had for the future, did you want to write about politics? Well, it really started out as... A form of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you know, when you're, it's very easy to feel helpless. And uh, when you look out at how the the world is working and, and you th- think that things are going in the wrong direction and starting to write and putting my own ideas down and what I advocated for and kind of sort out my ideas, it's just helpful. It may not have a huge impact, but personally, it it's... Um, That's interesting that you say therapeutic. I mean, most people, and this reminded me to ask you about, because, uh, and you get, you get asked about this. In fact, you're, you're frequently asked to talk about this on the radio and other audiences where, you know, can you comment on, on, uh, you know, Swedish politics or, or the, the whole, uh, you know, those, those uh, Scandinavians seem so happy with their socialism and you oftentimes are the ones who are correcting Americans misgivings or misunderstandings about politics in that part of the world. But people think, okay, those Scandinavians are all happy and, and they, they kind of just go along with things. And you're talking about writing about politics from a therapeutic standpoint, but t- cover a little bit of what you're, and this isn't the point of, of our discussion today, but I do want to let you talk a little bit about, about uh, the whole issue of, of why you immigrated to the U.S. Um, and comment on Scandinavian quote-unquote socialism. Yes, so the, the, the reason why I got interested in the U.S. was that I, um, I uh, was made aware of the author and philosopher Ayn Rand back in Sweden, in Swedish translation, actually. And she kind of opened my eyes for the United States as a country and, and the promise and the virtues of the country, which was entirely new to me because, as most other Europeans, you kind of look down. You have a, have a very... Um, not complicated, but uh, um, strange relationship with the United States. You import and embrace everything of modern American culture, but at the same time, you're looking down on on America politically and morally, etc. And, and so, making moral judgments. Uh, yeah, Europeans. Like sophisticated. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of Europeans are. Have, have a, a sense of than, false superiority. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Holier than thou. That's that's a good way of putting it. Uh, now, in terms of so-called socialism of the Scandinavian countries, because it's not just Sweden, it's basically Norway, Finland, Denmark as well. It's not socialism. So uh, it's social democracy. And uh, there is a huge private sector in all of these countries, a, a private sector that is actually financing all these social programs that they have, free healthcare, uh, and everything I say free here is free in quotes because nothing is free, but free healthcare, education, and retirement benefits, and so on and so forth. And what a lot of people don't understand is that these countries, um, all of them, got rich before they implemented all the social programs. And especially Sweden actually was up there with the United States uh, before the 1960s in terms of being one of the freest countries in the world with very limited regulation, lower taxes, uh, and such. And then they started experimenting in the 60s and 70s and grew the welfare state tremendously and uh, basically ran into a wall, and then they had to cut back on it, and they have been doing slightly better in the last 20 years, but uh, it's still an enormous tax burden and what many Americans don't realize is that the marginal tax rates that they have over there are uh, very punitive. So 
if Americans really realized when when the highest marginal tax rate kicked in, they they would um, would rebel basically. <laughs> Tea party time uh, yeah. again, huh? Now, having said that, though, we should realize that in the U.S. we are a lot closer than what we think to that model. Now, we have a messy healthcare system because it's being regulated to death, basically. And, uh, but the answer to, to when, when people say we need uh, universal health care is not to look over and look at the Scandinavian countries. It's to, to look at our own system and basically deregulate and make the market work because that is how we would create a healthcare system that works for everybody. So that reminds me, early in your book, uh, and this is quoting, I think, from your book, you, you say something to the effect of, uh, Americans are often unaware that a government safety net comes at a price. Free stuff tends to be consumed freely. And that's, that sort of lays the framework for you know, just talking to that, maybe that exhausted middle, uh, who aren't really that involved in politics, and just, just making them more aware of what, you know, what the actual price of things are when they're, when they're advocating for this or that kind of program. But are the, are the Scandinavians or the Swedish... Are, are people uh, from the old country that you came from, are they more conscious about that than Americans of saying, well, we, we realize there's a price and we want to pay it anyway? Or, or are they in the same sense that Americans are just like, well, you know, if it's free, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more likely to take advantage of it? No, I think they may be more aware of the price that they have to pay for it, but they're also more accepting of it. Because more, aren't they more... Uh, I don't know, submissive? Is that the right answer? Uh, uh, partly, yes, because the level of acceptance of the welfare state is so high. And yet people may complain about um, paying high taxes, the fact that their kids' education is not as good as they would like it to be. But when push comes to shove, you know, they accept that they are part of this collective. So collectivism is a, is a cultural phenomenon. It's, it's, it's so much more it's thorough. It's ingrained. Yeah. It's so thoroughly ingrained in the Scandinavian countries, in all European countries, in yeah, pretty much all countries outside of the United States, Well, and that's what you're talking about is being, being uh, attracted to the individualism, at least the, the spirit of individualism in this country. Um, but... Uh, yeah, again, that's what it sounds like is partly the motivational uh, motivation for writing the book is to say, you know, we're losing that. And, uh -huh. and let's be aware and conscious about what's going on here. So I do like the way you start off and, and, and your big premise, the big premise that you start off with is who should be in control? You're asking that question. Why do you start off with that question? Well, because that is the fundamental moral question. Do you as an individual have the right to be in control of your life and all life's decision from basically... Uh, well, if you're a parent having kids and when your kids grow up and come of age and, you know, um, what, what do you want to pursue? What job do you want to do? And then throughout life, how do you want to form your family? What, what friendships do you want to make? Uh, how do you want to retire? What do you want to save up for retirement? And so on and so forth. Now, so a lot of people would say, but, but I do all of that. No, and, and I 
kind of feel that I'm in control. But then if you start to look at the details, if you take retirement, for instance, throughout your working life, you have to pay, if you're in the private sector, together with your employer, uh, 12, 13% in Social Security taxes every year. And that adds up over a career, uh, over your working life. And that is something that putting limits on, on, on your freedoms and uh, on, your, on your rights to, uh, to plan, plan for your life. Uh, same thing with, with healthcare. We touched on it briefly earlier. But the fact that if you're working, you're most likely locked into a, a health plan by your employer. A lot of people who are approaching retirement, they don't want to retire because healthcare costs are too expensive if they would leave their employer before they get to Medicare. And Medicare in itself is something that you pay for your entire uh, working career. And, uh, and then you're locked into a government system. So your freedom is severely restricted when it comes to health care as well. So when you ask that question in the book, and, then, and presumably when you're talking to, to some of the exhausted middle or, or just people who are not you know, steeped in politics and don't pay that much attention to it, when you're talking to them and ask them that question, you know, who should be in control, what I heard you say is their intuitive answer is, well, I should be in control, and, and I am. I have mostly control over my life. Mm-hmm. And, but then your purpose is, is to ask them, well, do you really have that kind of control mm-hmm. and, and are you losing it? Um, but, but do some people say, well, you sound like one of those radical individualist person, you know, selfish persons, you know, and look, we're all in this together. What's your reaction to that? You know, the, the, the sort of, uh, you know, you and I brand it is altruism and that mm-hmm. being an evil thing, but most people have it in their own psyche as no, look, we're all in this together, and and I don't want to be selfish, you know, and and so I can't I, I can't think about well I got to control my own life. I, I have to think of others too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first I I tell them that yeah you're right I am radical. <laughs> I'm an individualist. <laughs> I don't think the book ever comes across as radical. I, mean, I don't know if your intent was that no way. no it's not. But but speaking for myself, yeah. you know, it is uh, it is a radical view that I'm taking here. That on, one owns their own life in, that in real. That one owns <laughs> their own life, yeah, exactly. And, uh, but so what you tell people when we're all in this together, and in a way we are all in this together because we're all part of the human race. But altruism, as you mentioned, and altruism is a term that is being used very loosely. Very loosely, yeah. Yeah. And so people, I mean, real altruism means to sacrifice your own values to other people's values. Or a higher value to you, you sacrifice it to a lesser value. You do something that you really wouldn't want to do. But when most people talk about altruism, they're basically talking about this, we're all in this together. and Or be a good person. Yeah, you know, be a, a good fuzzy... person. But they're com- confusing altruism with benevolence. Mm-hmm. And benevolence is something that I believe is part of human nature if it's allowed to flourish. So, for instance, you know, most of us are, are, are charitable by nature. I mean, we want to take care of ourselves and our loved ones, but when we have something left over, yeah, we invest it, but at some point or another, we look at our hierarchy of values and we see that, you know, helping someone or seeing someone else grow and thrive, and that becomes a value. Mm-hmm. You can look at the people who, who make a lot of money, the entrepreneurs and, and the billionaires and millionaires, and they turn to charitable causes very frequently because 
after yacht number three, you know, it's not that fun any longer. So you need to find something else to fill your life with value with. And and yeah, some do it for, for altruistic, so to speak, reasons. You mean they're kind of guilted into they, it? They're guilted into it, yes. But a lot of people just do it because they're good people. And, and well, it's and I've not, heard you make the point before yeah. that... Uh, that America itself and capitalism uh, is almost the creator of charitable, in any meaningful way, charitable giving. That you know that it, it's because the first thing that comes is wealth production, and when you get that kind of right. surplus, then you're mm-hmm. able to, yeah. and people want to share their bounty and and make the world a better place. Right, and and so what what you see with benevolence is that as your freedoms are being eroded, as the government takes over more and more of the take, benevolence kind of gets suppressed or gets pushed out. So if you take an example of healthcare, or um, no, let's use Social Security instead. So before Social Security was implemented in 1930s, we had a very flourishing free market system of different retirement options for people. And for the people who, who maybe through no fault of their own, didn't manage to accumulate enough. Well, there were charities who were supporting people. And the same with healthcare, that you could find healthcare and doctors were charging different fees to, based on how much people could afford. They can't do that any longer. And out of good heart. What do you mean they can't do that? I think I, think I understand what you mean, but yeah. you're saying they, well, if you, they, if you, they can't do that anymore. You mean, you mean doctors don't get to price their own services anymore? There are some who can, but if you think about them being part of health insurance, uh, or they basically have to be part of health insurance programs, and there you have the prices are, are preset. So, for instance, if someone comes in with, with the, that don't have the means, they still get charged the same amount as, as the person who would value the service more and, and would be willing to pay more for it. So let me get back to the theme uh, of the book. You know, think right or wrong versus left or right. Um, tell, tell the audience more about what you have in mind there. Um, think in terms of right and wrong. Are you being a moralist? And are you saying that the right and the left are not thinking in terms of morality? They're thinking in terms of morality, but a morality that is basically going against human nature. So we talked about collectivism before. And collectivism is... Um, very much based on altruism. So collect, another term for collectivism is, is a more collo- colloquial term is groupism. You can think of it as that way. So the, the fact that your rights, as we talked about, has to be subordinated to a group of some kind, whether it's the, the, the family or the nation or the minority majority or something like that. So in its, in its most trim, primitive way, you're talking about tribalism, right? Well, yes, it goes back to tribalism. Tribalism is being thrown around these days, and, and or you think I think we're be- talking too much about tribalism these days. But yes, in, in a how, way, how it goes mean, how back. Do you, is it being mis- misused in today's culture? That's well, what? I think it's being misused in the sense there's too much focus on tribalism because people use it today, I think, as an argument for collectivism. We are tribal, so therefore we need to be collectivists, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think if you look back at history and take the really long perspective, I mean, we started out as hunter-gatherers, and you lived in tribes, smaller groups, and you really couldn't leave the tribe because it meant certain death. Yeah, it was a very you, rational thing to Yeah, exactly. To, to so to you were part together. of the group, but that then 
built up this this collectivist thinking already way way back then but that didn't mean that the individuals weren't there and everybody had to think for themselves they were still individuals and yes they contributed for the good of the tribe now then as people settled down and agriculture was invented and these units grew and became nations and empires and things like that. Those tribal ways, they kind of stayed with us. So the, the, the chief of the tribe, now he's a king or an emperor, and the, the shaman or, or the tribal elder or the, the spiritual leader of the tribe, yeah, he's now a priest or a rabbi or a, or pope, a, or a pope or a mullah or something like that. And so almost by default, the collectivist premises, they just continue. We just kept them. We just kept them. In, in a sense, exactly. we've outgrown them is what I hear you saying. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I mean, nations, people experimented. So the ancient Greeks, they tried out democracy and dictatorships and, and had some success with that. And the Romans had the republic before it became a um, more of a dictatorship after that with, with the emperors. And uh, then you had um, the Renaissance, and then we got into the Enlightenment. And that's really when the individual was first taken seriously, if you like. And um, the English philosopher John Locke was the one who really put individual rights on the map. And from there, uh, those who know their history know that this country was formed on the explicit ideas of John Locke. And... Uh, that's so, the first and so far the only country that has been founded on individualistic ideas. As but you're not covering that kind of history in the book. I mean, I'm, I'm covering some of it a little bit, little, yeah. But, but yeah. I, I, I want to go back to one thing you said in the book, and I think this is really important in the mm -hmm. context of what you just said about the Enlightenment, uh, is that um, you, you say something about, you know, as a human being, the, ultimately you survive by thinking, either you're thinking or someone else's thinking. And that's how we thrive. We, we survive and we thrive by human intelligence. And that it's hard. You know, thinking is hard work. You have to make some effort. To, mm -hmm. but, but that time period during the Enlightenment, that's where, the, you know, it fits and starts. But that's what opened up the ability for, for truly creative people to be able to think, create, and then keep what they created or, or, or benefit from the, the fruits of their labor. And that whole idea of thinking, I want you to, I want you to talk more about as far as that being part of a uh, necessity for people to recognize to have a, a thriving society, you need people to be able to think freely. Yes. So when I say that individualism is the, basically the moral base for how you should build a society, that goes back to, as you mentioned, human nature. And what is specific to human nature, what, what differentiates us from every other creature in the world. And it is the fact that we are thinking. And thinking rationally is really our tool of survival. We don't have a thick fur or claws or strong teeth that, you know, and an instinct that helps us survive. No, we have to think. And thinking is an individual effort. Now, you can default and, and decide to go with what someone else comes up with, but that decision in and of itself 
it's you who make the decision. So again, it's your individual thinking. So even if I'm copying someone else, it's it's me making the it's evaluation. It's your saying, decision. Well, they they maybe were really creative, and I'm going. Looks like they got some good ideas. Yeah, there, and, exactly. I'm try and to you try. know, if you if you look at it in life, we do it all the time. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and it's rational to some extent. It's division of labor, uh, but you want to have do it for the right reasons. So so thinking is individual, and that's how we survive. And that's why, so then you ask yourself, okay, what kind of sociopolitical system do we need to protect your right to think and to reap the benefits from your thinking? Because thinking is what you do. You put it into work, and you uh, produce. You get property. And property rights are fundamental. It's a part of your individual rights. But when, when people hear that, a lot of mm-hmm. people hear, okay, property rights, that's, that's a necessary evil, and it sounds like capitalism, and that means that you got people who are gobbling up property, or you have, you, you've mentioned the billionaires and the entrepreneurs, and those are the guys who somehow come out on top. They, they've got the property to start with, and then they produce more, maybe they create more, maybe they steal more, but they're the guys who end up with all the property. They end up with all the chips. Um, that's sort of the caricature that mm-hmm. people walk around thinking about capitalism. But you right. make the case in the book that no, capitalism is more a system of harmony. Tell, tell us more about that. Yeah, but there is no doubt that there is what we call today economic inequality in a way in a capitalist system. Because, and we haven't really mentioned it, but capitalism is the social political system that is protecting individual rights and therefore is in support of individualism and of human nature. In the book, you talk about how it's more of a system of harmony. When you have individual rights protection, and specifically when you know, I was talking, we were talking about property. When people have property rights delineated and clarified, and they can trade, they can first of all keep what they produce, and then and then trade it with others. That that creates a sort of harmony that goes on, mm-hmm. versus what it's caricaturized to be is you know dog eat dog type of thing. Yeah, and so, so I think there are several reasons for that dog-eat-dog view. And one of them is that people are claiming that a certain system is capitalism when it isn't. So the fact that you have government involvement, and and there is no doubt that some of, of these people who amass large fortunes, more so in other countries than in the United States, do it with government help, government protection. They're in bed with the government. We call it cronyism. Some people call it crony capitalism, which is a, uh, it, it's the wrong term to use because it has nothing to do with capitalism. So um, we, we see a lot of um, misrepresentations of capitalism in that way. But if you look at capitalism as it should work, then you have a protection of property rights. And as you mentioned, people deal with one another through voluntary trade. And yes, some people are more competent, more able than others, and they end up making a lot of money. But we have a hierarchy here of, of people and, and um, the tide that lifts all boats. So if, if Bill Gates is making a lot of money, but he has produced some of the most valuable products in the last 100 years, and we all have one of them on our desktop or one from Steve Jobs, uh, and under capitalism, yes, they make a lot of money, but it's because of other people valuing what it is that they're producing. 
So they're trading in there. Everyone's winning, even though there's inequality. Everyone is doing better. Why is do you think though that some people don't like that? They'd rather have you know equality and misery rather than inequality and seeing this big disparity of wealth and and you know inequality of you know someone's uh, why do people get envious why i guess th- i'm asking you to psychologize a little bit about that but but why do you think there's that kind of a, a culture and, and maybe that it's not necessary that you know it's partly the way we've evolved to and that's partly what your book is sort of an antidote to is is to say wait it doesn't have to be that way but i'm curious about your thoughts on that yeah so i have a section on envy uh, under capitalism where i basically say that envy is politically uh, impotent under capitalism. So envy is an emotion, and uh, yeah, I'm psychologizing a little bit here. I'm not a psychologist, but uh, envy tells us that someone else has something that we want. You know, and emotion is an emotion. It doesn't have a moral weight, if you like. It is what you do with it that carries uh, moral importance. And so when you experience envy, you have two two avenues to pursue. You can either say, wow, I really want that thing that Mike has. Let me work to achieve, make money or something so I can get it myself. Or you can uh, say, wow, I don't like that Mike has that. Let me see if there's a way I can take it away from him. So you're saying uh, that individuals and cultures can uh, either I mean, is it still envy if you're inspired by it? If, you, if, you, if you're saying, I see someone else over there, they have something I want, they have a bigger house, Yeah, a I think car. You, can, you can feel a pang on it of envy. That's, uh-huh. that's normal. That, that's okay. But then but it's, it's what you do with it. what you do with it yeah. that, is, uh, that matters. And, uh, and in a system where you have a government and politicians with uh, disproportionate amounts of power, and they are very good at catering to envy. And so when you hear calls for taxing the rich and uh, soaking the rich and uh, and um, just to, to redistribute money from the rich to the poor. And uh, it's often done in terms that appeals to people's envy. It's You don't want to admit that you're envious, but uh, it's unfortunately very easy to, to succumb to that temptation, if you like, and say that, yeah. It, do you think that's uh, that is that itself is human nature? And there's another part in the book where you talk about, uh, and maybe I'm, I'm, you know, I want people to go out and read this book. I'm mm-hmm. talking about quite a bit of it, but no, no. there's a part where you say there's, I don't know if you say it's instinctual, but there's a trend where lots of people have this. There ought to be a law, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. They see some kind of. Uh, inequity or wrong they see in the world, and they're immediately saying there ought to be a law. Um, and is that from some sort of human uh, human nature envy that's saying, you know, I want control? Why why is there that movement for people to think they can have things saw, solved by you know a legal method versus some kind of uh, collaboration with somebody? I'm not sure. I don't think it's always envy. Uh, I think it's. It's it's part of the collectivist mentality that unfortunately is uh, well, and like you said, it's we're talking about hundreds of thousands of years of tribalism yeah. where we grew. It's it's almost like individualism and the idea of true civilization, where we don't resort to violence, we don't resort to power, we we use our minds and we try to persuade each other is in its infancy in a sense, right? 
mean, yes. I mean, we're, we're talking about basically, well, this country has been around now for close to 250 years. Add 100 years to that, and we're talking 350 years in a 100,000-year time span, right? Yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's the yeah. new kid on the block. But I think it's important to point out there that that is, that is a discovery that we have done. Basically, in a way, it's a scientific discovery. And just like Isaac Newton, um, I think he did it. Don't quote me on it, but you know, the, the, he identified some significant laws of nature. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> and, 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 We're going to get deep into yeah, both. Yeah, exactly. Lack of knowledge yeah, of no, I, I, yeah. It's, I think you, you're, you might get some, some comments from your readers here if I go too deep into this. <laughs> but anyhow, I mean, and, and we pretty much consider that facts of nature, right? That took us up a step on the ladder towards being more civilized and a more advanced society. And just the discoveries of individualism, of the importance of individual rights, it's, it's the same thing. Just the fact that we have only had 350 years of it doesn't mean that it's a, it's a dead end. It's the next step in the evolution of the human so that brings humankind. me to the point. There's a point in the book where you, uh, you know, you've given some of this framework and you start getting into some of the concrete examples and then you, you admit to the reader or, or you ask the question, some, some people may think I'm being Pollyannish about mm-hmm. what can happen, how, how we can change this because we do have this thousands of years and, you know, all of Europe and most of the world, the history of the world is about tribalism and collectivism and, and altruism as being an ideal and, you know, how do we change things quickly? But you use, you use an example of, of a couple of different examples. One of them is same-sex marriage. You're saying that that, that actually uh, didn't take that long to change. You know, the, the, you know just a, a few decades ago, um, virtually everyone in the U.S. said, mm-hmm. you know, no, this is immoral. You, you can't allow for this. You can't have it be a legal thing for, for uh, a man to marry another man or a woman to marry another woman. And now that's flipped. It's fairly well accepted with most people that that's that's okay that's that should be a legal thing to do whether they want to sanction it morally or not yeah so so just to to provide some context here i'm using that example um as an example in in what i call creating the moral groundswell so any significant movement and the significant movement that i'm concerned with is to promote and champion capitalism but any significant movement that has been successful has had a moral conviction that it is right. And I'm using the same-sex marriage um, movement as an example of that and the acceptance of, of, uh, uh, of gays and, and lesbians in general, starting out in the late 1960s, basically, or gaining momentum, and then... 50, 45, 50 years later, you know, you have the Supreme Court ruling that it's constitutional. Whether you think that is right or wrong is besides the point here, but it shows you that a movement's moral conviction can lead to success. Yeah, we I saw th- the same thing in, in the 19th century, the abolition of sw- slavery. It sure. was a small group of committed individuals who drove the issue. And they were morally convinced that they were right, and that eventually led to victory. You had it with the the women's liberation uh, and women's right to vote. 
You had it with the civil rights uh, movement in uh, in the 50s and 60s. And, that, and that's what you're trying to uh, say is is the crucial aspect is having that that moral understanding. Uh, and in this case, that that individuals, you know, across the board, not only who they marry, but what 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 they what they get to keep or how, how much control. Answering right. your initial question, mm-hmm. who's in control? Well, the individual yeah. ought to be in control of their life, and that is a moral issue. It is a moral issue. Absolutely. And, and because, you know, the, the practical implementation of all these things, I have a section in the book where I, uh, about capitalism and, and giving examples of, of how capitalism would make life a lot better in many areas if it were consistently implemented. But yes, the practical, I, I can keep pounding at the practical advantages of it, but if people still continues to believe that it's selfish and immoral, nothing will ever change. And we see that already because none of these ideas are really new. I mean, Adam Smith articulated them back in the 18th century, some of them, and intellectuals have kept refining those thoughts in, in the 200 years since. But we haven't had the moral uh, championing of capitalism. Well, and this is where, especially in the regard to, I mean, I, I think I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, you, you made the analogy when we were talking about that same-sex marriage. You know, this could happen in in the area of retirement and social security, uh, but it's going to take that. It's going to take young people, you know, being morally motivated to say, "Wait, this is an immoral system, and yeah. it's not going to work." They're now convinced. I mean, most young people under under 40 are convinced they're not going to see Social Security. And they, they, they understand practically that it's not working. And they're, they, they're hearing about it's, it's in debt and it's not, going to, you know, it's not going to work for them. They're not going to get a check from Social Security. But do they, are they starting to adopt that moral fervor that you're looking for to say, okay, this is what we have to do to get the change that we need to, to get rid of. And again, it, it sounds radical, and it is, to say we're going to get rid of this welfare state, this, uh, these yeah. entitlement programs, but that's what it's going to take. You're going to have to have. Yeah, no, I, 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 you know, I would like the young people to take to the streets, and say, I don't want to pay for grandma's social security any longer. <laughs> what about grandma though? They're going to say, well, even yeah, those young so, people and the grandmas and it, who are listening to us are going to say, wait a second, right. I don't want my, I don't want to be cut off. Yeah, but so obviously it it has taken us 80 years. Have we had it for 80 years? 90 years? It's almost soon 100 years of social security. So obviously it's a system that is in place and it will will take time to get out of it. But that practical part of putting a plan in place to getting out of it, it's not that hard. No, it's doable if we had the moral conviction. absolutely And if people realize that they'll be that much better off. And so to grandma, I would like to say that, you know, wouldn't it be nice if you were out there in the streets advocating or the same thing as your grandson or granddaughter, that we need to get out of the system. Yeah, it will take some time. I will still have to collect. Because remember, you may have paid into the system, but that paid for the Social Security of your parents and grandparents. And you're basically on welfare if you're collecting Social Security today. And it doesn't feel really good to be on welfare. No, and, yeah. I, and I think there are more and more people who are elderly who are who are who would even say it's a ponzi scheme and i understand uh-huh. that and who, and who if the, all the all that they have to have is some leadership of someone who who points that pathway both from a moral and practical standpoint that says this isn't right it's immoral we can't do this anymore from a moral standpoint and guess what we're going to we're going to solve many more problems by freeing up the energies of people 
to to have the ability to save for retirement on their own. And and obviously there's a a uh, a transition period like you're talking about. But the, the leadership is the ones, the people who say, here's the direction we're going, and we're going to change this. And over the course of a certain number yeah. of years, we're going to we're going to be out of that. And and it will have to be with the same fervor and the same moral conviction as the civil rights leaders had, as the abolitionists had, as the people who were advocating with same-sex marriage had. You know that because that's what you need for politicians to start to take notice. Yep. Before that happens, we won't see any change. We get the politicians that we deserve, and if we don't push the issues, they will not. Uh, they will not change course. And we're starting to see that uh, back to the education issue. As I mentioned earlier, I, don't, I, I meant to ask you this early on, and I'm, I want to get your thoughts on this, Anders. Um, I mentioned you know, COVID maybe helped that long in education. Are you optimistic with regard to the moral fervor of people who are saying, wait, this educational system needs to change. It needs to be privatized ultimately. It needs to be, there needs to be, you know, now the, the, Operative term is school choice, right? Yeah, and having money follow the kid, but still controlled by the government. But is there, are you optimistic about what's happening in that area? Um, I'm not sure. I think most parents will probably just want to go back to normal. That's my fear. I so would the fervor that was there, but it didn't have any real moral conviction, and now it's right. Like, exactly because I was comfortable before. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, uh, public education is so ingrained in the American psyche, unfortunately. It's, uh, um, I mean, slavery was ingrained too, so it obviously can change with the right moral, moral uh, fervor. But uh, yeah, we'll see, I think. I think there are some, some good signs. Um, and uh, charter schools, to some extent, money for following the child is, is a good, but uh, really to make a fundamental difference, you need to change not only the production of, of education, and with production I mean the government, local government running the public schools, you also have to change the financing, you know, and eventually you have to get rid of the link between property taxes and education and uh, state and federal funding of education as well. So we've talked about a number of different examples, healthcare and education and retirement, some of those big things, lots of big issues. Let's, let's go back out uh, and talk about the bigger issue of, of right versus left. Um, and and you, know, you, you begin to end the book with some very concrete things as far as, you know, people talk about, well, here's how you affect change, you know, write your senator. But you give you know, some very specific ways to, to either write your senator or become more active and engaged. Talk more about that, some of those steps to, to, to first of all, um, be clear on the fact that uh, it's not about right and left. You know, both parties, at least at this point in time, are advocating for more power and control. But some of the concrete steps you advocate for if someone wants to be an engaged citizen. And, and that whole idea of citizenship, talk, talk more about that. I know this is a long-winded question, but I, I want to have you uh, express what you mean by citizenship. Yeah, so, so let me first, let's first go back a little bit and comment on what we said earlier on, that the political right and left are basically playing in the same sandbox. And I think that, that may be foreign to people as well. So, but if we just take the big three issues that are covered in the book, retirement, social security, health care, and education, 
And yes, you find some movements on, on the right, perhaps in education, but there is very little questioning of, of Social Security, of our current healthcare system, and of public education as such. Uh, so that's why I'm saying that, you know, left and right politically, they're very much aligned here when we need something radical to, to really get out of this. And, and that is what represents the morally right to give control back to you and me and to the individual. Now, when you say citizenship, a citizen guide? Yeah, when, when you talk about a, you know, a 21st century citizen guide, and I think it is, I think the yeah. book is that, it's, yeah. but you have maybe sort of an unstated vision of what it means to be a citizen versus you know, every two to four years get all riled up to vote or, or right. what does it mean to actually be a free citizen? Yeah, so, so first I use the word citizen in, in a broad context here. So, you know, it's not just that you're a legally uh, naturalized American or doesn't matter if you're born here, if you're in the green card process or if you just arrived in the country, you know, you're kind of a citizen of the, of the country. Um, in that sense. So, yeah, I think you have a, a uh, I mentioned earlier that we get the politicians we deserve. And we have a responsibility as citizens to, to try to affect change. Now, I know most people are not very interested in politics. And in many ways, I think that is a, a very healthy uh, approach to life because there is uh, So that's unique. I mean, because most, most parents, yeah. uh, most people um, even if they don't act this way themselves, would say, no, you really, to be a good person, you, you should be much more involved, you should be political, you should be thinking about this stuff, even though they may not be that motivated themselves. They would tell their kids, you know, you, you should be political. And you're saying, eh, it's not that important. I mean, Well, it, it shouldn't have, it, it is important, but it shouldn't have to be important. Because now, how do you mean that? I mean, it, I it mean is that, important today's yes, world the way we've got the culture. Today. It is, and, but it is important because the government is involved in every aspect of our lives. You know, I, I have a section in the book that says that the importance of voting will be marginal in a free society, in a capitalist society, because if you imagine if if the government wasn't involved in retirement and you started saving. When you, uh, when you started working and, and, and kept saving throughout your working life, it's not that hard to save up for retirement. If the government was not involved in health care, you know, there wouldn't be that much to vote on. That so the voting would not be that important, important for your health care decisions. Because you would be in control. You Back would be in control, exactly. And the same with education. You know, If you're afraid of uh, the government... Uh, doing whatever to your kids' education, yeah, you need to get out there and vote because that's how you affect change. But in a free society, that would not be the case. So today, yes, it is important. And the way of staying involved or, or at a minimum level is to contact your representatives and your elected officials and people running for office. And I have a section of that at the end of the book. And it's, it's, very, it's easier than ever to do that because they're all online. They have websites, Congress and your senators. They, they all have their uh, email addresses that you can send to. And make it short and sweet and positive. And 
make the moral case for whatever it is that you want to propose. You know, you made another point in that section about not, not it, it not being a sacrifice. I mean, if you're motivated by that and, you, and you, the activism is engaging, you know, is mm-hmm. energizing to you, great. But don't do it as some sort of social, social justice crusader. Um, the people who think they're going to change the world that way and, and aren't doing it for the right reasons oftentimes end up being very disillusioned. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting as well because you're saying be a citizen, be engaged, and, and you know, out of self-interest you need to be today more maybe than you would in a rational mm-hmm. society, but, but don't do it out of, out of a sense of sacrifice itself. Um, and I thought that was reinforcing of your overall point of, you know, you want to be in control of your life and you have more important things to do than to think about, you know, some of these issues. Uh, you know, they, they, they should still be in, mm-hmm. under your control. And so you have to advocate for that. But, but otherwise, you know, life is more about, uh, you know, producing, creating and enjoying. Yeah. But just like many parents today, you know, they step up and homeschool their kids. They're, they're kind of modifying the hierarchy of values. They may have pursued a career and in a, in a free society where they would be able to find the school that teaches the values and at the dollar that they can pay to their kids, they would continue to pursue their own values in parallel of educating their kids in a good school. And then they change the values. So, so that is kind of an extreme way of where you have to take things in your own hand today. Um, and it's kind of a political statement to homeschool your kids, right? But even if you're not ready to do that, you know, write to your political, your representatives about if, if you're concerned with education. It doesn't have to take that much time. You look them up online, your local school board representatives, your state representatives, and make a point of messaging not only people from the party that you may be aligned with, but both parties, because as we mentioned earlier, there's really nobody who is seriously questioning public education uh, if, if education is the issue. So, so be sure to cover both parties because we don't know where it will take hold. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I really appreciate you being here and talking about the book. Um, I think it's an important book right now, especially, you know, it's timely in the sense that we're, we're looking at the U.S. midterm elections coming up here, and there's a lot of practical application that a person can get out of reading this book to, to think through and, and to be more uh, aware of, of how to effectuate change. And so I think it's, it's a fantastic book. Where can people get it? Uh, so you can find it on Amazon.com. There is a Kindle version, a paperback, and uh, the Audible version will be out here in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. Uh, you either uh, look up Think Right or Wrong, Not Left or Right, or just search for me, Anders Ingemarsson, on Amazon. That's where you can buy it directly. I also have a newsletter now, Think Right or Wrong, on Substack, and that is Anders Ingemarsson. Dot substack.com. So is that going to replace or is that an addition to separate? Separate or? is uh, retired. Okay. Yes. So, replace so think separate. right or wrong. Yes. And if you're interested in my previous writings from separate, you can get them in the archives on the news sites. So uh, it's all there. Excellent. I, I, I really appreciate you being here today. So what in, in, any other future projects? What are you up to once you get that? You've already uh, recorded the audio version. It'll, it'll be out uh-huh. soon. What are, what's up next for you, aside from uh, sacrificing yourself and, and, and uh, with me on the golf course? I, I'm kind of joke because uh, I don't think you sacrifice too much. I'm not that bad. And uh, although no, we're, we're having fun, you know. I you know me, I, I wouldn't be out there if I didn't have fun. So yeah. um, 
What are, what are your future projects? Are you going to do so, some? So uh, I mentioned initially that one of the target groups here is high school kids. And so I'm working on a study guide uh, that would accompany the book so that if, you know, if, if, a, if a class would decide that this is something they want to study, that there would be questions and, uh, and assignments uh, related to the book. So that's one thing. Uh, I probably will publish a third revised edition in a couple of years. So if any of our uh, listeners are in education, if they're administrators or teachers and they want to bring you into the classroom or, or help you with that, you know, that project of, of turning this into uh, a, a project that, that, that young people could use, uh, they should just contact you. Absolutely. Yep. Well, that's fantastic. Primarily, if you go to the Substack newsletter, there is a contact form there that's easy to reach me. Well, we've been talking to Anders Ingmarsson. Uh, as I said, he's a, a friend of mine, a collaborator with our Defenders of Capitalism project, and a prolific author. Think Right or Wrong, Not Left or Right is the book. Go pick it up, read it before the election, and stay tuned for our next episode of the Defenders of Capitalism Project. This is Michael Williams signing off. Thanks, Anders. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me.